Welcome to Heating Up, a podcast about climate change, our dangerous future, and what you can do about it. This week, we don't have Corinne, we don't have the news, but we do have something really special. We have our first, uh, well, we had our first guest a little while ago. This is our first real interview with a real person that's not related to me at all. But uh, Jimmy Pearson from Mutual Aid Disaster Relief came onto the podcast and we had a nice talk with him last week. I thought it was a really amazing conversation about what mutual aid disaster relief is, what they do, the sort of things you can do and how you can get involved or plugged into that sort of thing. So we're going to release that today. And then in a week, we're going to have our 25th episode, our mega spectacular. So thank you guys for listening. Here is our interview and I hope you enjoy. So when most people hear or think of the term disaster relief, they think of like FEMA or the Red Cross. So how does the idea of mutual aid differ from the idea of like nonprofits or government aid? So oftentimes the aid from like traditional top-down relief organizations or governmental um, emergency planners, it's stigmatizing. Sometimes it's patronizing. Um, oftentimes it ignores the skills and resources of people who are impacted because oftentimes being a part of a communal recovery is how people heal uh, from, from a crisis, from a disaster. And um, oftentimes there's also a clear uh, dividing line between those who have and those who are um, volunteering or you know paid uh, to, to, sh- to share their resources and those who are receiving. And there's, you know, no, there's a, there's a clear separation between those two things. And then uh, with powerful givers, the powerless receivers of aid, um, that, that, you know, disaster survivors are empty vessels to be filled with blankets or food or water and often uh, um, a downward gaze. And, and so with mutual aid and solidarity, it's a different approach. Uh, we're working together as equals, as co-decision makers. And there's no clear di- dividing line between those who have and those those who are uh, sharing and those who are receiving. You know, there's uh, this you know kind of communal, we're all giving what we can and taking what we need to survive. And it's empowering as well uh, that, you know, it doesn't ignore the resources and the skills and the knowledge and the expertise of people who are impacted. It draws on the wisdom and we're all in this together, uh, contributing to each other's survival and well-being in ways that are liberatory, that are powerful, that remind us that that another world is possible. And not only is it possible that it, it also it exists in the here and now in a microcosm with how we relate to each other. So oftentimes people will come in to a distribution site uh, where they're giving medical aid or supplies and they think that their first instinct is, oh no, this is gonna be this patronizing experience. And then so off the bat, the first thing uh, that we do is try to dispel that and, and make people feel welcome. And you know, there's no, you know, like, oh, you can only have one can of this. Oh, you know, like, you can only, um, you know, like, sign in here, show me your ID. Let's see how much income you have. Let's see, let, let's confirm your address to make sure you're affected. Instead, it's a welcoming atmosphere where we treat everybody uh, with respect and dignity that they deserve. And, and also, you know, uh, give people 
uh, opportunities to be part of, a, of of the recovery effort too. So you know, drawing drawing on people's wisdom and knowledge and expertise, and we all hang out, we all you know eat, we all you know share in the work, and then in this atmosphere that's more empowering and participatory and liberating, uh, folks uh, just feel feel at ease and take on more and more responsibility and, and decision making power and. It's, it's a model that uh, it, its time has come. Um, it's proven time and time again, not just in disaster response, but throughout uh, all kinds of different areas, participation and shared power affects positive outcomes. You know, you, people uh, want to have a role. You know, people don't need more experts telling them what their needs are. People know what their needs are. People need uh, folks that can listen and be a connecting point for resources. Um, and so that's a priority in a solidarity-based and a mutual aid model. It's relationship-based and it prioritizes asking and listening rather than assuming what people's needs are. Wow, I mean, that's perfect uh, summation of it all. Um, like you said there at the end, it really reminded me, one of the mantras of mutual aid is solidarity, not charity, right? Um, so yeah, um, that kind of gets at the key difference between the two um, in a way that, like you said, I think that's really important that it's, empowering for the for the otherwise quote-unquote victims of a disaster um that they can take you know control of their own kind of you know recovery that's interesting like think about people who end up needing some help but you're like oh wait they're not completely unable to do anything they're just in need of other help so actually being able to participate has to be way better than just sitting there accepting what you can and not being out it and they're able to give back in their own like most people want to, like you said, they don't want to feel this patronizing sort of top-down thing. They might have something else to give. They may need food, but they may have a way to give other resources or give something, you know, or vice versa. So, yeah. yeah. That's actually the case most of the time. You know, for example, you know, when I was in Panama City, uh, we went to these housing projects, you know, distributing supplies. And uh, this this woman was saying, you know, she called us, we, we Gatorades, water, you know, food, different things. Um, and she was saying how because of the uh, bureaucracy and the red tape with property managers, she couldn't get her roof uh, tarped. Um, and so, you know, after going through all these different, you know, motions and different, you know, red tapes and experiencing all these blocks at, at, all the time, when we rolled up, she, she told us about it. And we said, well, um, you know, they actually told her that uh, she wasn't allowed and she would be fined if she put up a tarp on her on her roof. Um, and so uh, when when she saw us, she told us about it and we said, well, we don't we don't have any, you know, qualms about putting up a tarp on your roof. And and so but she had the knowledge. She had the expertise. She she did roof tarping before as a professional, you know, gig that she did. <laughs> And, and so she, you know, she directed us. We parked the truck right on the side of her house, climbed up onto the roof. We didn't have a ladder at the time, unfortunately, which um, is quite funny. Um, but she directed us. You know, she, she showed us what to do and guided us every step of the way. And we got, we got the tarp, uh, tarp up. And so she was able to stay in her home longer uh, because of that. You know, because she taught us, you know, what to do, we were able to do that at other other places as well and over and over again you know like it's it's folks that are impacted uh that uh show us uh to other folks that are that 
that um, we should check on. You know, like, so say, you know, after Hurricane Irma, we went down to the Keys. And uh, everywhere we went to the different trailer parks or different neighborhoods, there would be people saying, oh, yeah, you know, it's great that you're here. But also down in this area over here, we have uh, a neighbor who, you know, uh, they, they might need some extra help. You know, can you go check on them? And it's that kind of, you know, a, uh, a people-powered response is it, it's necessary to, to listen and draw on the wisdom and experience and expertise and also, you know, often too, you know, like for Hurricane Florence, half of what we did was based on uh, the connections and the resources of, of folks that were local, that were spearheading, you know, the efforts and knowing, okay, so, hey, we got a semi-truck full of supplies and how are we going to unload it without the necessary, you know, pallet jacks, pallet equipment, or anything like that and so a, a local par partner is able to be like okay i know this guy who knows this guy and we're able to crowdsource you know uh solutions that that leads me right into a question i kind of had about how these mutual aid networks form um how much of it is forms in the immediate aftermath of a disaster like you were saying you get a pallet you get a truck full of stuff and you just need to figure out how to get it unloaded and so everyone makes those connections and how much of it is formed prior to, like, organizations that already exist then connect? Um, just kind of from your experience, what seems to be more likely? Yeah. So definitely the the soil, uh, the soil from which uh, strong people power and mutual aid response uh, arises, it, it all, almost always takes place before. You know, that uh, there's already these diverse connections and networks, maybe unspoken, uh, that already exist in all of our communities. And many of them, you know, they're, they uh, have connections based on community organizing or justice, you know, that there's a street medic collective, or there's a local food not bombs, or uh, there's just, you know, communities, neighbors who know each other, you know, and, and this is like the, the glue that when a crisis hits, uh, people tap into those networks to meet each other's needs and and then um so oftentimes after a major disaster we we reach out to folks that we know their friends networks friends of friends or local black lives matter groups local food not bombs groups local street medic collectives or just look on facebook to see what what spontaneous local efforts are springing up of neighbors helping neighbors and then we plug in and ask you know how can we help you know we're here what do you need you know and that's usually the first response and then from there it could be uh, it, it um you know sometimes people are just like hey we have an amazon wish list can you you know direct people to it you know or hey we have we you know have have our own thing going can you just know boosted a little bit and other times it's like yeah we're overwhelmed you know we need some more hands on the ground and you know we'd love you know more support if if folks are able to come uh come help in a in a in a physical way and then um oftentimes some folks are local to that region local to that city um or to that area uh, but then other folks are coming in from outside but regardless we uh, you know in in prioritizing and listening 
uh, to uh, affected communities, asking and listening. Uh, we build strong bonds really quickly because you know, oftentimes folks aren't coming to the projects or to trailer parks or these uh, different neighborhoods and saying, hey, we're here. Uh, we come with, you know, like these medical supplies or these herbal medic um, tinctures or these, you know, food or water, Gatorade, like I was mentioning, or tarps or whatnot, you know, and saying, okay, we have this. Uh, it's yours if you want it, but what else do you need? We're, 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 we're here for you. And then that can build uh, trust really quickly, you know, not coming empty handed, but coming with something to offer, you know, whether it's just water or food, medical aid, you know, or legal assistance. Oftentimes people are facing evictions. And so being able to connect folks with lawyers is really, really helpful to resist those illegal evictions. And, um, you know, coming uh, at it in this way, you know, we, we, we build strong bonds. And then oftentimes what happens is that we find people in those communities are already taking care of each other. They're already, you know, spontaneously coming together to meet each other's needs uh, in really um, powerful ways. And so oftentimes we just are a link with, um, you know, c connecting them with more resources, uh, material resources and network resources uh, to support uh, what, folks in the community already doing for each other. Yeah, that's great. Um, you mentioned how you build, they build these bonds or these bonds get strengthened through the mutual aid process. One of the things I find really fascinating about, you know, in reading about mutual aid and some of the uh, efforts that have already happened is how they last so much longer than the initial sort of instigating crisis and how the mutual aid effort keeps going in a way that, you know, FEMA or the Red Cross will swoop in do their thing and then leave town, the mutual aid efforts tend to move maybe out of immediate crisis response, but into more long-term like uh, projects in the neighborhoods or in the communities that really help build. And I'm thinking here of like the Common Ground Collective or some of the other organizations that have really kind of just grown into a whole different paths or done other things because they're based on listening to the, and being built by the people in the neighborhood who know what it needs. Um, can you talk about some efforts that have done that? Like uh, maybe because I think probably most people are not too familiar with Common Ground or some of these other organizations that have done this kind of thing. How how disaster relief moves into just kind of uh, almost uh, what do you call it survival programs or whatever, some sort of neighborhood development stuff. Yeah. Uh, so Common Ground, uh, it was a or is a an organization in New Orleans. It was founded after Katrina by a former Black Panther, Malik Rahim. And uh, there's also a confluence with uh, joining the forces between the legacy of the Black Panther Party with Malik Rahim and the kind of the practical fruits of the global justice movement. And you know, for, um, for over a decade, uh, folks were involved in you know, I mentioned, you know, food not bombs. So cooking large uh, meals for people and large meals at protests or mobilizations or people uh, created independent media centers uh, at large demonstrations against the World Trade Organization or uh, the International Monetary Fund or different things like that. And also people engaged in uh, medical solidarity, uh, street medics took care of people's wounds, whether that be tear gas or uh, being uh, beaten by police, you know, medics would take care of each other. And so these different skills that we've utilized 
uh, through uh, different protest movements or different movements for justice. Uh, in New Orleans after Katrina, they found a, a, a way, place where they could be deployed. And together with the legacy of the Black Panther Party, merged into this, uh, what became known as the Common Ground Collective and later Common Ground Clinic and Common Ground Belief, uh, where folks responded to the needs of Hurricane uh, Katrina survived in a way that was dignified and, um, you know, based on solidarity, not charity. And whether it's a, a tool lending library, roof tarping, you know, there's a woman's shelter, there was a bioremediation, a community garden, you know, you mentioned the, the clinic um, across the board, you know, what people needed, you know, people were able to create survival programs based on what people needed. And then there were some, um, there were some issues, especially with disaster patriarchy. It's this term that, that refers to, you know, like that crisis mode that it's almost a step above regular patriarchy where you know, everything's like almost laden, you know, with this crisis environment. And um, there's also, you know, some abuses uh, with regards to that. Um, but uh, it, it showed an example of how solidarity, not charity, put into practice uh, can outperform the, the top-down command and control model uh, based on, you know, that, that FEMA or the Red Cross or other NGOs uh, practice. And it's similar happened, you know, when Superstorm Sandy hit New York by Sandy transition to disaster response. And uh, both both of these instances, it was people powered and solidarity, not charity based. And there were long-term, you know, repercussions and different initiatives that outlasted, you know, and continued, you know, for years or decades, you know. And um, how I like to think of it is um, that it's kind of like love. Um, we all want it to last forever. Sometimes it doesn't. But regardless, um, it's beautiful and powerful um, and inspiring, you know, and, and it teaches us, uh, you know, that, that there's more to want than just the nine to five or the fancy new car, you know, that these, these experiences where we come together and we build something from the ground up, taking care of each other, being there for each other in really meaningful and powerful and lasting ways, uh, it shows us what is possible. And that can never be taken away from us, you know, regardless of whether folks go on to other things or other projects um, or other other locations, you know, they carry that seed with them. Uh, and it is a seed that, you know, it, it grows and blossoms in different ways. The Zapatistas uh, talk about how there's, you know, like a crack in the wall, you know, and we don't want that crack to, to seal up. And, and oftentimes uh, in situations that are like 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 we experience with Hurricane Katrina or uh, these other disasters, the wildfires out on the West Coast. The moments of tragedy uh, where the suffering is very profound and we can't help being uh, affected by that suffering, uh, but also it's moments uh, where there's there's a crack in the wall that divides us, and we can see each other through those cracks. We can you know build these relationships. That, that are are meaningful and based on something true, something powerful, something beautiful. Oftentimes, we're stuck in this meaningless drudgery of everyday life where it's a slow-moving disaster that, you know, we, we don't feel connection, we don't feel the meaning or the purpose. And then um, even with 
all the trauma, and I don't want to discount the trauma because it's real, other than the suffering, it's profound, uh, that, experience, that people experience after uh, these uh, crises moments. Um, but also at the same time, it washes away that unnameable disaster that is everyday life under modern capitalism. Yeah. And so yeah. in, that, in, that, in that space, something new is able to emerge where we, you know, instead of working for our jobs, we're working for something real, taking care of each other, uh, being like, hey, are you okay? You know, coming out of our houses, sometimes meeting each other for the first time. And it's, it's, it's something that, you know, for people who've experienced it, uh, it's something that lasts a lifetime, you know, that, you know, that we remember, you know, far beyond when the, the power's out are involved in a like a community disaster and they actually get to be a part of community for once the levels of depression actually go down you're like yeah, shouldn't be you'd think it'd be the opposite but it makes so much sense because you're just sick of going to work and having nothing mean anything and then all of a sudden you're being a part of community you're helping others and that's uh, it's interesting Satan like to hear you say it about it in real life it's like I heard it in theory but and you know, there's this thought too that, oh, I would do that, but you know, I don't have enough to give, or you know, like I, like what, what, what could I potentially offer? You know, in the San Francisco earthquake over a century ago, people started a community kitchen with just like one spoon and one bowl. You know, people who are impacted by the earthquake, you know, and just coming out there and be like, hey, what I have, I'm going to share. You know, and that. You know, that dispels that, you know, everyone for themselves, you know, mentality. And, you know, it, it just starting a first aid station with, you know, a couple of Band-Aids and antibiotic ointment. Or whether it's starting a, a distribution center with just the supplies in our cupboards, just the food in our cupboards. You know, if, if we just start from where we are and we start sharing with each other, people see that and they want to do the same. You know, and, and, and you know, it, it, it can be very easily snowball in really powerful and beautiful ways uh, where a first aid station becomes uh, a little uh, a clinic where or a little wellness center and they keep snowballing from there and there and there because, you know, people come in and like, oh, yeah, you're doing that. Hey, I'm a massage therapist. Can I set up a table? Or, hey, I do acupuncture. Can I, can I do that here as well? You know, and then just drawing on everybody's you know, experiences and wisdom and folks be like, you know, like, hey, yeah, I came here for food, but I'm a mechanic. So can I help fix everybody's cars that, that are here, you know, that need it? You know, it's, it's those type of activities that really create a communal uh, healing atmosphere uh, that, that's necessary for us to recover um, from these experiences of, of disaster. And you mentioned to, um, you know, or you touched on it just briefly how, you know, like for, for many, economy isn't working for them. You know, there's already an underlying social and economic disaster uh, that's taking place that, you know, people, you know, are struggling to, you know, feed themselves or keep a roof over their heads or different things like that. Part of this is recognizing that um, even though there might be a difference in intensity, you know, with a, an earthquake or a hurricane or a flood or a fire or something, uh, that it's a difference in degree, but not in kind from the ongoing experience of so many. You know, we see social inequality and injustice, and that's the backdrop. And then the needs of people, you know, 
are existent after the disaster too, and they're magnified. You know, so folks that were you know food insecure or housing insecure before the disaster, it's doubly so afterwards. You know, and so part of uh, this approach that makes it distinctive is it's not ignoring those realities. It's not saying, hey, we're all neutral and impartial. We're, we're saying, hey, you know, we're we're going to side on, on the side of justice and we're going to uh, especially, um, you know, magnify and look, look to those who are historically most marginalized and ask them and listen to them and see where their needs are and see where their needs are being ignored or overlooked and try to address those in whatever means we can. Yeah, I mean, you hit on a really good point, which is that so many of these disasters, especially as we enter the age of like climate catastrophes, they really just exaggerate existing disasters that are just more slow moving or more kind of under the surface. Yeah, like the poverty crisis and the crises that we already exist and the disparities of capitalism. They're just, ex you know, just expanded by the disaster. Like we looked here, we live in Sacramento and the recent forest fires, the fire that wiped out uh, the you know the city of paradise in the north is a very rural poor neighborhood and then the fire that hit in malibu you know malibu's recovered those people have you know were able to buy private firefighters and save their homes while the entire city burned down where they couldn't do that so those disparities are only going to get worse as the crisis continues you know oh um i was gonna say you know you mentioned the wildfires you know they're in increasing in intensity and frequency um exponentially and, and sort of the storms, mm -hmm. you know, uh, over the last century, extreme storms have been increasing in intensity and frequency exponentially, and they're going to be continue to be doing so in the in the near future. And unless we course correct, make a profound restructuring of our economy and our whole society, we're heading for a cliff, and we're not going to not fall because we don't look down like in the cartoon movies. You know, there's profound profound changes that need to take place or and the state's not going to do it you know the it, when it comes down to it the nonprofit industrial complex is not going to save us the state's not going to save us there's no cavalry coming uh if we have a hope for survival it'll come from each other uh be, we have to be taking care of each other because no there's nobody coming in nobody rushing in to save us we have to we have to save ourselves we have to save each other we have to be there for each other because um, you know, what, what we're looking at is, is um, a profound, you know, reorienting of civilization as we know it. I mentioned Malik um, before, uh, an elder Black Panther uh, who helped co-found the mutual aid relief effort in New Orleans after Katrina. He, he would tell me that he believes that our generation will be either the, the generation that uh, squanders life as we know it or saves life as we know it. Uh, but it will be the, either the most hated generation or the most loved. And it's up to us. Yeah, I mean, that's a hopeful way of looking at it. I mean, we all hope, right? Like, we can only do our best and hope to change it and be the change and, you know, participate and try and do the best we can. Um, which leads us right into, so, yeah, regardless, right? We can only keep fighting, right? Um so what would people, how would somebody who's maybe listening to this, who is first kind of hearing about mutual aid, who's, in, you know, loves the idea, how would they go about connecting with a local group or going to help? Like, let's say when the next disaster happens and someone is able to go and help, 
how do they get connected in with a mutual aid group rather than trying to go through the more established, like the Red Cross or something like that? How would they, if you're just a normal person, you know, who, who's moved to help, how do you do that? How do you hook in with mutual aid? Uh, so one thing is uh, mutual aid isn't something that we invented. Mm -hmm. You know, like, for example, most people survive post-incarceration uh, in our society because of networks of informal mutual aid, you know, family, friend networks that are people taking care of each other. You know, so we didn't invent mutual aid, you know, and folks are, you know, encouraged and they already will, we know, uh, go outside and take care of their neighbors in immediate ways, you know, that are powerful, just like getting uh, getting into a canoe and rescuing people from the floodwaters. That's what neighbors do to neighbors, you know, and that it's just part of how we're hardwired, uh, being, being part of humanity. Uh, but also uh, in regards to uh, mutual aid, uh, in regards to, you know, these different disasters, uh, we have a website, mutualaiddisasterrelief.org. And in, in addition to having our own mobilizations, we also uh, boost and highlight other spontaneous manifestations of mutual aid uh, that, that are springing up in different locations. For example, you know, with the Midwest floods in Colorado, there's a group called the Dandelion Network that sprang up that was addressing folks' uh, needs uh, in the greater Nebraska uh, area, you know, uh, based um, on the same mutual aid and solidarity, not charity model. And so you can find out about these different organizations uh, through our website, mutualaidisasterrelief.org, and you can contact us uh, through there, through that website, uh, about how to plug in. Even if you're not able to come to a disaster uh, site, there's all kinds of off-site support that folks are able to do as well, uh, whether it's acquiring donations or um, uh, helping with, you know, like uh, – video or uh, different, um, you know, we have all kinds of different working groups based on, you know, like different uh, needs that arise, you know, whether it's medical or legal or, uh, you know, housing, anti-eviction stuff. Uh, and and we, we always want and need more folks, many hands make light work. And uh, we always want more people to be involved because we know that it's going to take a movement of movements uh, to, to, to make a change and to have, have a lasting impact on, you know, what we're up against. And so we, we want people to volunteer with mutual aid disaster relief, but also we want to make clear that, you know, it's not just us out there. You know, there's all kinds of other organizations and networks and movements, you know, and we're trying to uplift those at the same time. And folks are welcome to be involved and also start your own, you know. You know, you don't need anyone's permission, you know, to get it done, you know, join with others, you know, in your community. And, you know, like it doesn't have to be called mutual aid disaster relief. It doesn't have to be, you know, branded or, you know, have this logo or that logo, you know, just, you know, like come together, uh, find a need and address it. It's, it's powerful what we can accomplish when we stop waiting for others to do what we know must be done and, and just start out, even if it's just a baby step doing it ourselves, you know, and in, in a little way, just how, whatever we're able to share, share it. And then it's powerful what we're able to, to make happen uh, from that space. One of the things being caused by our climate chaos is uh, massive amounts of human migration. And that's making the news right now because of Trump's terrible policies of, you know, detaining uh, children and families. But that's been going on for generations now at the southern border. And there are so many mutual aid groups working in that area, I think right now a lot of people are looking for ways to help. 
uh, kind of alleviate that crisis and to draw it, you know, draw attention. Are there any groups that you know of that would definitely be a place for people to plug in or something that people can do to, you know, help kind of deal with the migratory crisis and help kind of change our policies in that area? Yes, um, both at the border and all around the country. Um, we just actually on our website, uh, mutualaiddisasterrelief.org, our latest update is all about these different mutual aid um, border movements, you know, as, as a sister movement to our own. Uh, there's uh, folks in El Paso, folks in Tijuana, uh, folks, you know, who are, you know, providing medical aid, you know, uh, supplies distribution and at all the different, not all the different, but um, in ground stations all around the country, there's different uh, folks that come out uh, to meet migrants while they're on their way to their uh, hosts um, place all around the country. Folks meet them at bus stations and provide mutual aid. Um, you can uh, go for a, for a list of just a small portion of these different mutual aid organizations and networks. Uh, you can go to uh, our website and see the latest update uh, on that. Great. Yeah. I don't know. Corinne, did you have any other questions? Anything else you wanted to? Um, no, I don't have any other questions. It's a great organization. It was really good to talk to you and actually hear about like communities getting to help themselves, which is a big thing that we were, uh, our podcast is about is being prepared and being able to help ourselves because FEMA's not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Especially as you know, the crisis gets worse and worse. The government's already showing that they're incapable of handling the crisis as it is. As you said, the nonprofit, you know, networks are going to get tapped out or maxed out. And the only thing left will be these mutual aid, you know, helping ourselves because, yeah, they're not going to be able to help. Um, they've already proven they're incapable of doing it. I mean, we've seen the terrible responses to so many disasters already um, that mutual aid seems to be the best and most promising way forward for helping each other um, get through our dangerous future, I guess. So thank you so much, Jimmy. Is there anything else that you want to say that we didn't ask? Anything we should have asked that we didn't? Um. No, I, I think you. I think y'all pretty much got it all. I think we had a, a great conversation. I enjoyed enjoyed it very much. Well, thank you so much. And if you ever uh, have anything that you want to uh, get out to the people, you can always give and get back in touch with us. We'd love to have you back on. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Our very first real live interview, so that's always good. Thank you. Yeah, and we'll uh, talk to you later. I'm sure. All right. Yeah. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Thanks thank so, so much. much. All right, so that was our interview. Hopefully you liked it. Again, if you enjoy our podcast, please like, subscribe, rate us, write a review, tell your friends about us, and we'll be back next week with episode 25. We'll see how Corinne has done on her merit badge project and maybe some other fun stuff. So yeah, see you guys next week. Bye.